I love my small group Bible study. Every other Sunday night is my favorite night of every two weeks. Anyway, I take my job as small group leader very seriously. I'm here to help others grow. Oh, this, yeah. Um, well, these are just a couple of the sources I consulted preparation for each week. I'm kind of a Bible nerd, <laughs> but I take it seriously. You know, I live for this. Does everyone else love Bible study as much as I do? Yeah, yeah. This means a lot to all of us. Did I uh, read the study this week? No, no, I meant to though. Uh, but it, you know, it doesn't really matter because Stephen's gonna just recap the whole thing anyway. Twice. A small group, all different people, different places on their faith journeys, all growing, I'm sure. I think you can tell a lot about a Christian by how much they highlight. Oh, a small group tonight? Right, it's great to be here again. You know, every other week just isn't often enough. Am I right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, we have a lot of material to go through, but before we start, what did you think of the sermon this morning? Mm. Oh, I found it so challenging. Well, I like it. It helped me see that passage in a little way. Mm. Yeah. You know, I really agreed with his interpretation. Confession. I was not at church this morning. Look, when Sunday rolls around, all I want to do is watch Netflix in my pajamas. This group? I, I guess I've been, um, I've been involved for about a year. I don't always make the meetings. I have a really demanding job. And they're nice people, but it's always the same, you know? I mean, Stephen is always going to agree with the message. And Lindsay, well, she's always going to find it challenging. Yeah. If she were any more involved at this church, they'd have a bedroom here for her. <laughs> and Laurel, she's just so nice, humble. You know, she's one of those people who's the real deal. I'd like to be like her. Yeah. Just like I'd like to eat kale salads and stop arguing with my mother. But life. <laughs> You know? Uh, so some of us, uh, me, Stephen, and Lindsay, we've been together for a long time now, about, about five years. I've been at the church uh, 20 years now, um, since I was a student. I was so fired up back then. Uh, even a few years ago, I, I felt like God was using me, speaking to me. Uh, these days, though, I feel like I'm just going through the motions. But, but I go through them. I, 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 I wait for God to, to, to show up, to do something new and big with my life. 
I feel like I, I'm the only one who feels this way. Uh, didn't, didn't speak to me. What? Huh? Yeah, the message. It, it, it didn't speak to me. Hmm. I didn't disagree. There, was, there wasn't anything wrong with it. I just, uh... Okay, okay, look. Can I be honest with you guys? Sure, of course. Yeah, look, I, and I hope you don't feel any less of me because of this, but the truth is, nothing has been speaking to me lately, mm. spiritually. Oh, mm. you mean you've been reading secular books? <laughs> no, no. I, well, yeah. But no, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, uh, spiritually, I've just... I'm going through the motions. Oh. For how long? About a year now. Wow. What's that like? <laughs> Our group meets every other Sunday night, which is great for my schedule because Mondays I have worship team rehearsal. Tuesdays I lead a women's Bible study. I think it's very important to have a women's only and a co-ed group. Oh, on Thursdays, I volunteer with the middle school ministry. My twins are in sixth grade now, and they just love having me there. Oh, I volunteer in the church office, and I'm on the elder nominating committee. Oh, and they just asked me to be a part of the committee that nominates the elder nominating committee. So. Well, it's, I, I feel disconnected from God and, and from my faith. Mm. You know, when I, when I try to read the Bible, I, I can't focus. Yeah. And when I, when I pray, I, uh, nothing, nothing feels meaningful. You know, sometimes I, I think that maybe I, I, I've just imagined those times in the past when I thought that God was speaking to me. Oh. I'm, tr I'm, tr I'm trying. I'm, I'm at church every Sunday. I haven't missed this group in, in, in a whole year. I'm showing up. I just feel that like, uh, God isn't. Well, you know what? If you're showing up, you're ahead of me. <laughs> I, I think I made it to church once this past month, and I almost didn't come tonight. I wake up on Sundays, and it, it just doesn't seem important. It, it's like I've lost the sense that, that God's going to meet me there, or that it matters to anyone whether I'm there or not. I, I just, I can't connect it, you know, to the rest of my week, and... Work has been insane, and look, on the weekends, all I want to do is relax. Yeah, yeah. you know, I, I used to feel that I was, I was thriving yeah. in my relationship with God, with, with you guys. Yeah, of course. You know, you remember that, that, that fall we did that, that, uh, that service project with oh, the oh, rescue yeah. mission? That was, was great. I, yeah. I felt that God was showing me something new every week. Everything felt significant. I, I want that back. Mm -hmm. I, I want to get started. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I just don't know how. I, I feel stuck, stalled out. Ah, uh, I failed them. <laughs> you know, I... I've noticed that you haven't been around, and, and I've been meaning to call. I've just, I've just been so busy. Yeah, yeah I, we know. We know you're always busy at church. Well, yeah, I, I am really involved. 
Did I tell you guys I'm chairing VBS this summer? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Many times. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You, you know, I'm, I, I feel like I'm just, I'm looking for direction. You know, I'm, I'm looking for what's next. And I do so much. I just, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm just going in circles, you know, and, and I haven't admitted this to myself or, or to God. I, I don't want to let him down. And, and I don't want to let down all the ministries where I serve. Did that just happen? <laughs> you know, you, you can't hurt the ministry right. or even God by just being honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. Lindsay, you know, I don't know if this will help you, but I had a time when my feet dried up. Mm. That was when my father got sick. I was so angry at God. I didn't even want to talk to him. So I didn't. Until one day, I realized that we hadn't spoken in months. What did you do? Well, I blame him, of course. <laughs> I told myself it was his fault. He was God, after all. So I kept my distance. I drifted away. And when I really wanted to change, I had a lot of work to do. Mm. I know it's not the same, but you can't get moving again, because I did. That was very hard for me to share, but it was worth it. During my hard time, I did not speak to anyone, and I think that was a mistake. Now I know why nobody talks anymore when I do these lessons. Oh. No, no, and that's because you tried to get us through three books of the Bible every two weeks. Yeah. yeah. With yeah. commentaries translated from, from the Greek. No, the German. Oh. <laughs> you and that study guide uh -huh. that you have us working on, uh. I can't get through two pages uh -oh. at night. It's just so dense. Oh, yeah. Stephen, we know that you love this yes. stuff, but it's a lot for the rest of us. Yes. Hey, do you think there's maybe like a, a an advanced Bible study that you could go oh. to because the rest of oh, us no. really need some help? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not for yeah. me. I wouldn't do that. No, this is about us. This is our group. This is the yeah. Newtonville Every Other Sunday New Night Small Group Study. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Guys, I have an idea. Hmm. What if we skip the study tonight and then we can just talk? I like oh. that idea. Yeah, good yeah. idea. Yeah. I'm on the Flower and Holiday Decorating Committee, the Easter Sunrise Setup and Worship Committee. I pick up the little communion cups after communion on Sundays. Nobody asked me to do it. I just, I just do it. Those bulletins, they don't fold themselves. We have a machine that does it. I don't trust it. I volunteered to help the senior pastor with his wardrobe and tie decision. Nobody asked me to do that either. Well, the drama you just witnessed is fictional. Any resemblance to real persons in your small group are purely intentional. Okay? <laughs> uh, we've just met quite a cast of characters on a variety of places in their spiritual journey. Some of them just getting started, some of them been following for a long, long time. Some are enjoying the journey, some are struggling with it. But they all have one thing in common. They know what it's like to feel stalled on that journey to be stuck. 
stagnant, to feel like they're not getting anywhere, like they're not growing anymore. And some of them are in that spot right now. And chances are some of us are there as well. The inspiration for this teaching series comes from a survey we took back in the month of January, some of you may remember. We asked the congregation to identify where they were on the spiritual journey from seeking to believing to growing. And one of the surprising discoveries from that survey was that a significant number of people here at Grace feel stalled on their journey. And we discovered this. We decided to do, make some adjustments to our teaching plan for the year in order to speak into this experience of life. So we're going to continue with our Rediscovering Jesus theme for the year, but for the month of April, we'd like to go back to the Gospels and learn what Jesus had to say to people who were stalled along the way, in particular, his own disciples. Because as we've just been reminded, it's easy for any of us to get into those kinds of places. We've all been there when we feel like we're just going through the motions, we're feeling distant from God and church. We feel like we're dealing with the same old things over and over again. And when that happens, the spiritual journey is about as fun and fruitful as pushing a car uphill. It doesn't have to stay that way. We're going to try to avoid simplistic fixes and formulas because there aren't any. But we do believe, I do believe, that when we rediscover Jesus we can get going and growing again. So let's go back to the Gospels. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark this morning, chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there. We spent a little more time with our drama today because we really want you to get to know these characters because we're going to bring some of them back in the weeks to come as we work our way through this series. But let's begin at the beginning of the disciples' journey, Mark chapter 1. After John was put in prison... Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now notice the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark are the words, the time has come. And he uses a very particular word for time. In the Greek language, there are two words commonly used for time. One of them is the word chronos. It describes ordinary time, chronological time. The second is the word kairos, which describes a critical time, an opportune moment. And it's that second word that Jesus uses here, according to Mark's gospel. The critical moment has come, he says. And he speaks those words just after John the baptizer is thrown into prison. As if John's imprisonment was a kind of a signal that he was to begin his public ministry. This was a pivotal moment. Now the reason that's all very interesting is because we learn from John's gospel that these four men, 
Some of them, maybe all four of them, were in fact followers of John the baptizer. They had gone out to hear him preach. And so these four were already on a spiritual journey, a journey that had now come to an abrupt halt when John was thrown into prison. So it's not a stretch to suggest that these four men were stalled on their spiritual journey. John had awakened something within them. They'd gone out to hear him preach. They'd become disciples of his. Chances are they had been baptized by John. But suddenly, John's thrown into prison. And that had to be a very unsettling experience for them. If John was sent from God, why would God allow him to get thrown in prison? And what were they supposed to do now with their leader in jail? Who were they supposed to follow? And so it's not at all a stretch to say at this moment, they are confused, unsettled, stalled on their journey. And again, as we learned in our drama, it doesn't take much to get to those kinds of moments. Each of the characters tells a story of how they found themselves in a moment like that. Jeff is in a rut after years of vibrant spiritual living. Becky is finding a disconnect between her everyday working life and her spiritual life. Lindsay is so busy serving, she rarely tends to her own soul. And Laurel remembers a time when God let her down and she pushed him away. So all kinds of things can lead us to moments like these, including the loss of a spiritual leader, a friend, a mentor who suddenly steps out of our lives. And that's what happened to these four men. But as it turned out, this uncomfortable, unsettling moment became an opportune moment for these four. It became a pivotal moment. It's almost as if it had to happen in order for them to shift their focus from John to Jesus. What I'm getting at is that in the providence of God, stalled moments can become opportune moments, pivot points in our journey after God. As uncomfortable as they are to be in those kinds of moments, they let us know that something's wrong. Something needs attention. And that's what a stalled car means, right? When your car won't start in the morning, when it dies on the side of the road, it means something wrong there with the battery or the starter or whatever it is that makes cars run. I don't know what it is, but something's wrong. Something needs attention. And when your car stalls, it makes you stop and ask some diagnostic questions. Do I like where I'm going? Is this car going to get me there? Are we making progress? Do I need roadside assistance? And so it is with stalled moments in our spiritual journey. As uncomfortable, as unsettling as they are, sometimes they need to happen. And they can become, in the providence of God, pivotal moments for us, opportune moments to address something on the inside. We can get going and growing again. So let's continue with the call of disciples and see what happens. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. As we pointed out a couple of weeks ago, it was common in those days for the disciple to choose their master, to find a leader, a rabbi that they admired or respected, and to ask if they could follow after him. But here we see Jesus taking the initiative. 
It's Jesus who sees them. But notice, Jesus doesn't see a crowd when he looks out at the shoreline on the Sea of Galilee that day, even though there surely would have been a crowd of fishermen and their families. Jesus sees individuals. And he sees, first of all, that these are ordinary people. Notice, he doesn't find Peter, James, John, uh, Simon, or Andrew. He doesn't find them teaching in the synagogue. He doesn't find them sitting on the town council. He doesn't sound them living in luxurious homes. These are not movers and shakers. They're not celebrities. They're not rulers. They're not leaders. They're, they're peasants living in a working-class town. They're ordinary people. Secondly, he sees that they're hardworking people. In fact, they're actually working at the very moment Jesus sees and calls them. Simon and Andrew, we're told, are casting their nets from the shoreline. James and John are tending their nets, either preparing to go out or coming back from fishing. It seems as though the, the Zebedee family have a successful fishing business going because they have a boat, they have a crew. So he sees these ordinary, hardworking people. The third thing Jesus sees about these four is that they are spiritually minded people. We know from the Gospel of John that some of them have already gone out to hear Jesus preach. Some of them have met Jesus. Jesus knows they're disciples of John the baptizer. He recognizes them as seekers after the kingdom. So when Jesus comes upon the scene on the beach, he doesn't see a crowd. He sees individuals, people with names and stories and skills and passions and lives they're already living. And when Jesus looks out on this crowd called the Grace Chapel community on a Sunday, whether you're in any one of our venues or watching from home, Jesus doesn't see thousands of people. He sees individuals. He sees you. He sees me. He knows our names and our stories and our skills and our passions and our dreams and our disappointments. And if we're stalled in our faith, he sees that too. Just as he saw it in these four men floundering about on the seashore, not sure what to do next. The wonderful thing about Jesus is that he not only sees who we are, he sees who we can become. He sees our potential, who or what we can become in relationship with him. He says, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now, this is really a, an unfortunate translation of this verse, and I don't know why they translated it that way. It literally reads more like this. Come, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of people. There's some important words being used here. First of all, Jesus doesn't use the normal word for men, as in males, he uses the more general word, meaning mankind or humankind. So he's talking about all kinds of people, men and women. He says, I will make you. The Greek word he uses there is the, is the word poieo, from which we get our word poem. In other words, it implies a beautiful thing. He wants to make them, not just in a functional sense, but in a, in a beautiful sense. It describes craftsmanship. He uses the word become, which implies the process, time, 
fits and starts along the way. I will make you become fishers. That's fascinating that he uses this word. This is the only time in the Gospels, anywhere in the New Testament, Jesus calls anyone to be a fisher of people. It's very interesting. Notice he doesn't call them to say, follow me and I'll make you builders of God's house. Even though he's a carpenter, that might have been an apt metaphor to use. He doesn't say, follow me and I'll make you sowers of kingdom seed. Even though that's a metaphor he uses many times in the Gospels. He uses the metaphor of fishing. Why? Because that's who they were. That's what they were doing. Jesus doesn't use that metaphor with any of the other calls to the other disciples because chances are they weren't fishermen. This one is custom designed for who they are, for what they're already doing. It's also interesting, there's no precedent for this phrase, this metaphor being used anywhere in any of the, of the sacred literature of the time. It's as if Jesus made it up just for them. Now, there are some Old Testament references to fishing for people, but they're always negative in their connotation. They're describing judgment rather than salvation. So what Jesus is doing here, he, he takes this Older Testament image and he puts a positive spin on it, a redemptive spin on it. So it's describing salvation. He, he, he says to them, in effect, I'm going to take who you are, your skills and your passions, and I'm going to do something better with them. I'm going to do something eternally significant, something globally meaningful with them. So that day on the beach, these four fishermen discovered that Jesus had a grander vision for their lives. And that grander vision was so compelling, so true to who they are and who they wanted to be, that the scripture says they immediately got up and followed him. They weren't stalled anymore. They were on their way to a great adventure. So what's the lesson for us these many centuries later? I want to begin by reminding us that there are no simplistic formulas and no quick fixes to the problem of being stalled. But what we do learn from this text is that Jesus has a grander vision for our lives. And when we discover that vision or rediscover that vision, it enables us to get going and growing again. Now, I should give credit where credit is due. I borrowed that phrase, a grander vision, from Bill Hybels and a summit talk he gave a couple years ago at the Global Leadership Summit, which we host here every August. And by the way, the Leadership Summit is one of the best ways I know to jumpstart your spiritual journey. Whether you consider yourself a leader or not, those two days in August, I count on them every single year to get me up and going as the year approaches. So keep that in mind as summit time rolls around. But one of the reasons we get stalled sometimes is because we're afraid of where Jesus might be leading us. We're not sure we like the plans he has for us. We begin to wonder if it's all going to be worth it. I mean, all that Bible study, all that service, all that obedience, all that prayer. Are we going to be happy with the life Jesus calls us to? What we're discovering here is that when, when Jesus calls you to something, he's not calling you to something probably that you don't want to do or be. He's calling you to something that is already deep down inside of you. 
He's tapping into who you are, who God designed you to be, who God designed, what God designed you to do in this world. Remember, we each of us are made in God's image to do, to join him in his work in this world in a way that no other human being can. And that's what Jesus is speaking into as he speaks to them and as he speaks to us. He wants to take every part of your life, your skill, your passion, your life experience, your career, your education, your relationships, and he wants to work them all together like an artist creating a masterpiece called Your Best Life. Now, I'm not talking about health and wealth here. Please understand me. But I am talking about meaning and significance and joy and fulfillment. Your best life. The life God created you to live. And when we grasp that, when we discover or rediscover Jesus' vision for our life, it's enough to get us going and growing again. Now, Dallas Willard is a name that many of us are familiar with, a great scholar, Bible teacher, philosopher, who died recently. But Dallas has done as much work as anybody these days on, uh, on the process of spiritual formation, how we become the Christ-like people we were meant to be. And Dallas says that it always begins with vision. In fact, he says it has to begin with vision because without vision, any attempt to grow or change will inevitably fail when we get weary or discouraged or disappointed. He compares it to learning a second language. He points out that almost all Americans at some point in their lives study a second language. How many of you in high school studied a second language? Put a hand up. Go ahead. Most of us. Now keep your hands up. How many of you can speak that language now? Not too many. There are a few. There are a few. Now why is that? I think we would all agree that it would be a nice thing to learn to speak a second language. We certainly have the mental capacity to do that and the resources, but many of us never do. Dallas points out in other parts of the world, people almost always learn a second language. In fact, they start very young. They teach themselves. They do whatever they have to do to learn a second or even a third language. What's the difference? Dallas says, people in many parts of the world truly believe that their lives will be better if they can learn a second language, that it will open doors of opportunity for them academically, professionally, relationally. They will be better able to provide for themselves and their loved ones if they can learn a second language, and so they do. It's that vision of the better life that inspires them to follow through. For most Americans, learning a second language is a nice thing, but we don't see it as essential and so we, we lose heart along the way. Any motivation to grow or change has to begin and be sustained by vision. Let me try to illustrate it another way. Years ago, when our kids were little and we were just kind of beginning our family life together, we were uh, living back on Long Island, and one day we took a day trip to a historical site called Sagamore Hill. Now, Sagamore Hill is the family house of Teddy Roosevelt, uh, it's where he lived and raised his family during the years he was governor of New York and then president of the United States. And Sagamore Hill is a big, rambling house set on a hilltop. It's loaded with all kinds of places to play and to explore, both inside and, and outside. 
If you know anything about Teddy Roosevelt, you know that he was a larger-than-life character. He was an outdoorsman. He was an amateur scientist and botanist. He uh, was a scholar. He was uh, an artist. He was uh, an athlete. He was all kinds of things. And he had a deep love for his family. He and his kids enjoyed all kinds of adventures and intimate moments in that family house. So they said, we were just beginning our family life together, and as we made our way from room to room through that house, and as I heard the stories of what family life was like for them, as we came to the final room in the house and were reading a plaque just at the very end of the, of the tour, it had one of Teddy Roosevelt's many quotable quotes, I have had the happiest family life of any man I have ever known. And when I read that, something happened inside of me. I can remember the moment to this day, right where I was standing when I read those words for the first time. It pierced my heart and it fired my imagination. And I said to myself, in that moment and later that evening to Karen, I want that to be true of my life. I want to have the happiest family life of any man I've ever known. Not just a happy life, not just a happier, but the happiest family. It was a grand vision. And I can tell you, for the next 20 and now 30 years of life, that vision fueled my family life. That vision helped me say yes to my wife and to my children, even in the face of distractions and uh, weariness and, and all the discouraging moments that can come with family life. That vision gave me, helped me to say no to things that might have threatened or diminished our family life along the way. It wasn't about, about duty or demand or society's expectations. It was the life I wanted us to have. It was the person I wanted to be, that kind of father and husband and man. It was a grander vision, and that vision kept me going, even when things got difficult and wearisome. So what's, what's your vision for your life? What kind of person do you want to be? What kind of life do you want to live? What kind of impact do you want to have on your neighborhood, on your family, on your community, on your church, on the world around you? If we think following Jesus is just going to be a nice thing to do, adds a little bit of virtue, a little bit of stability to our lives, then we will surely run out of gas. We will lose heart. We will lose our way. We will lose interest. But if we believe that following Jesus opens doors to a bigger and better life, to a more significant and satisfying life, then that's enough to get us going and growing again, even when we run into stalled moments. Remember that Jesus' vision for your life is consistent with, with who you already are, who you're wanting to be, what you're dreaming of doing with your life. Jesus didn't call Peter and Andrew and James and John to stop fishing. He just had bigger fish for them to fry. He had bigger plans for them. All the things they loved about fishing, the, the hard work, the physical exertion, the, the being outdoors, the camaraderie of the crew, the thrill of the chase, the joy of the catch, all those things were going to be theirs in the years to come. He just wanted to take it to a whole new level of significance and satisfaction. And the same is true for his call on your lives. 
Your skill, your passion, your story, your education, your career, your relationships. He doesn't want you to give up on those things. They are not competing with him and his call on your life. He wants to take those things and do something bigger and better with them. He doesn't want you to stop being a student or a parent or a plumber or a doctor or an artist or an athlete. He wants you to be the best possible student or parent or plumber or doctor or athlete or artist that you can possibly be with his help. You are uniquely called to do something only you can do in this world. And when we answer his call, we get that vision for what life can be all about. Now, if that excites you, aligning your life with God's vision, we have a, an event being hosted here at Grace in a couple of weeks that you might appreciate. It's a seminar with an author and a speaker named Amy Sherman, and she's going to be talking about how we align our everyday working lives with God's call on our lives. Your career is not in competition with your Christian life. The Lord wants to take that and make it even more significant. So that's happening on April 16th. You can learn more on the website. So the point is, Jesus has a grander vision for our lives. So when we come to these stalled moments, instead of getting out and trying to push yourself down the road, take a step back and remember and refresh God's vision for your life. And allow that stalled moment to become an opportune moment where you see again yourself and your life as Jesus sees it. There's obviously more to getting going on our journey than just vision. Eventually, we've got to make decisions. We've got to take some action. And that certainly happened for the disciples. Mark tells us, at once they left their nets and followed him. Without delay, they left their father in the boat and followed him. So you can see the decisiveness, the swiftness with which they responded to this call of Jesus on their lives. But it began with a grander vision. So we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come, but enough for today to understand that we get going and growing again when we get a grander vision for our lives. We get going and growing again when we get a grander vision, Jesus' vision for our lives. Now, I know we're a couple minutes over, but it's snowing out. There's nothing to do anyway. <laughs> and I can't resist telling you one fish story as we finish, okay? My son-in-law, Isom, is uh, an avid and accomplished fisherman. So back in February, he went down to Florida for uh, the, the winter break there to visit with my daughter and her family, and my son Mark and his family came down as well. So one day, my son-in-law said to Mark and to me, hey, you want to go fishing one morning? Now, you have to understand, I hate to give up my early morning hours for anything. I, I like to study, I like to exercise or do both, and I just hate to give them away even on vacation. Understand, too, I am a very occasional and not very patient fisherman. <laughs> the last time I went saltwater fishing, all I got was seasick. So I wasn't sure how I felt about this invitation. But since I had this vision for the happiest family life of any man I ever known, <laughs> what else could I say but sure, let's go. Now, I didn't have high expectations for the day, honestly. I was just thinking, hey, I'll spend some time with my boys on the boat, and that'll be great. As we were making our way out in the dark and discovered the bait store wasn't open, well, I lowered my expectations even more. <laughs> we motored out the intercoastal waterway, and the water was calm, and there were no fish or fishermen in sight anywhere. But here we were. 
I made one cast, hurling that lure out into the water, and it had barely hit the water when I felt a tug, and then a yank, and then a pull that nearly ripped the rod right out of my hand. <laughs> Suddenly, the line is screaming out, spooling off of my reel. I could hardly keep up with it or hold on to it. I had no idea what we had on the end of that line, and for the next 40 minutes, we fought that fish or whale or whatever it was <laughs> on the end of that line. It dragged us a quarter of a mile up the waterway, that little John boat. Finally, we got the fish near the boat, realizing we didn't have a net. So we had to improvise a little bit to try to get that crazy fish into the boat, which we did, and it turned out to be a 30-some pound jackfish, <laughs> which is really impressive but lousy to eat, okay? It turned out that was just the beginning. We lit into a feeding frenzy of jackfish and hooked three more of them that day, including one that was so large, it took my son Mark and I together time to get the crazy fish into the boat. Now, here's my point. You can take that down now. <laughs> here's my point. When my son-in-law said to me, you want to go fishing? I had no idea what was in store for me. And there was a part of me that didn't want to get up and go. But I'm sure glad I did. Because I had one of my most memorable days ever as a father and a fisherman. Whatever you may be fishing for in life, Jesus has something bigger and better in mind. He sees you right now where you are. And he sees you as you can become in relationship with him. And so he's calling you for the first or the hundredth time to get up from whatever it is you're doing or not doing and follow him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us on this snowy Sunday morning after Easter. Thank you for the truth that you truly do know each one of us. You see us right now where we are. You love us as we are. And you love us enough that you want us to become all that we can be in relationship with you. Thank you for the good things you have prepared for us and your willingness to walk with us and work with us in order that we might become those people and be about your work in this world. Meet us where we are today, Lord, and in the weeks to come as we continue to follow after you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.